0: We are in. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your patience. Um, we are now joined by one of, in my opinion, the best writers in Bitcoin that is out there, Alex Gladstein. Uh, this entire journey for you, correct me if I'm wrong, started with a lot of a series of essays uh, that have been turned into the book that is now titled Check Your Financial Privilege. I'd love to go back further. What First, inspired you to go down this rabbit hole to explore how Bitcoin can help people in different countries in Africa, different regions in the Middle East, um, and even further back? How, what prompted you even to learn about Bitcoin?
1: So, and I'm okay, cool. I, uh, the first time that we at the Human Rights Foundation did something formal with Bitcoin was in 2013. Friends of mine um, who I kind of thought were crazy at the time were like, hey, we can use this thing called bitcoin to get money into the hands of protesters in the ukraine and i was like okay i'm listening um we ended up doing a fundraiser for pro-democracy protesters in ukraine this was before uh Made on square this was before putin's invasion of ukraine um and they were still living under this corrupt regime the Yanukovych regime and they you know had their bank accounts shut down and all this stuff so we ended up doing a fundraiser uh for the pro-democracy movement in Ukraine in late 2013 in Bitcoin. and Of course, Bitcoin was not taken seriously by most people at that time, um, but we saw that it was, hey, it was free to money, it worked. It, it, it was protest money. It got money to the protesters and they could use it, and, and normal fiat money didn't work. And That was an early signal for me. It took me a long time to realize that it wasn't like a one-off thing That it was actually something more cohesive and deep was happening. But over the years, I just learned more. And 2017, kind of uh, early 2017, went kind of fully in and just basically there. I can't remember what day it was, but. One day, I just was just that was what I did all day was learn about Bitcoin. (laughs) I can't remember what what day exactly it was, but it's like any story with most people. Uh, must have been the best day of your life. Yeah, one day you just are like, Oh my god, I want to learn everything I can about this thing. So, we started doing workshops at HRF, and I started talking to people and thinking about their struggles more from the financial and monetary point of view. And that was the genesis for the book, was thinking about how. Uh, most of the critics that I'm like always been debating on social media or whatever, or on, or on on the mainstream media, you know, they just live in this bubble. They live in this bubble of financial privilege and they can't comprehend that Bitcoin could be useful for someone else. And it's because they have their creature of the dollar system, like me and we, we benefited, benefited from it tremendously. And for us, money's easy to use Uh, apps are all seamless. Everything works, why, Why you know, Bitcoin would just be for criminals, right? That, that That is the dominant, you know, perspective of the mainstream media and of a lot of folks who are experts out there, traditional economists, et cetera. They really view Bitcoin as this disruptive, dark force that could disrupt this beautiful thing they have going on. And I, I think that that perspective is only possible to hold if you don't understand how broken money is elsewhere around the world. And once you start understanding that, I mean, at this point, I, who knows what the number is today? But as of like as of October, one point six billion people lived under double or triple digit inflation, and you know Bitcoin was such a vital lifeline for them, um, and and it, and it continues to be for people who don't have bank accounts or can't get dollars or um, are stuck behind embargoes or sanctions that they're not responsible for. Or you know I could go on and on, but the the the, the average person in this world has money problems. Not just, not just not enough of it, but also just that it doesn't work very well. And we're as Americans very privileged from that perspective, meaning our currency works really well and is in demand by everybody in the world. And therefore we get lower interest rates and all these other things that come with the perks of having the reserve currency. Um, but look, only like about 11% of the population of the planet benefits from both a reserve currency and kind of a democratic system that has property rights. Um, you know, every other person, the other 89%, the other almost 7 billion people either don't have property rights at all, they live in some sort of authoritarian regime that can just take whatever it wants, um, or they live under a weak currency, like a currency that no one really wants to save in. And, and that was the genesis for the book. And that's why the opening chapter of the book kind of, you know, lays out the thesis um, in that way. And then Know I get to go into a lot of other directions in the book. I I get to talk about well, this tool that all these people are using today, where did it come from? Who created it? I get to look at the cypherpunks and like their realization in the 70s and 80s that that electronic money was an existential threat to civil liberties and human rights. And we get to look at their quest for digital cash. And then we get to look at monetary history and kind of how did we get here to begin with with the dollar system? Like, where did it come from? And I have several chapters that Look at uh, how the U.S. government kind of worked with other governments to kill off gold and to uh, essentially assert its own debt as the as the world reserve currency uh, in in a very political way uh, through mechanisms like, for example, the petrodollar and other 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 kind of uh, tactics and agreements. Um, and then and then I just have a bunch of case studies where I look at individual countries and I kind of try to profile the the Bitcoin movements in those countries, um, whether they be in places like Senegal or Palestine or Cuba, uh, Afghanistan, um, etc. So, or even in America, I have a chapter that talks a lot about Bitcoin and and, and the American idea. So, um, yeah, I even have a chapter on on the sort of environmental impact and and mining and things like that. So, it was fun to be able to spend a few years writing the book, and I'm happy that it's out, and hopefully, hopefully, it can it can be a nice tool for for folks in there effort to help check other people's financial privilege. I was joking that we should get the hardcover soon because people are saying they need to be like smacking people upside the, uh, uh, you know, smacking people around with the book. So maybe a hardcover would be a little more uh, effective in that regard.
0: Nick Ward, I know you're out there listening. Let's get a hard co- op- hardcover <laughs> copy of this setup. Um, Alex, before... I I want to come present day and then I want to go into the past because one of the things that you just touch on is how you were able to essentially help uncover all of the privilege that we in America, especially have been able to live with, with our finances. But one of, I think the key things that you're writing this book, these essays, and even some of your latest articles does is there is this narrative that unfortunately many extremists on one side or the other are clinging to Bitcoin, primarily those on the right-hand side. Mm -hmm. However, pointing to your essays and articles, and, and this book even, gives a sort of narrative that, hey, Bitcoin isn't just for the wealthy. In fact, it is literally the opposite. You highlight a lot how essentially, I don't think you say it explicitly, but you essentially point out the further you are away from these money printers, from the fiat system that has been created, the less you have been able to succeed based on the systems that have been created to essentially block you or your country out. Um, I'm curious to know if one of these case studies in particular, I, I have my favorite. I'm curious if there was one that you are most proud of, uh, and maybe talking a little bit about that story.
1: Yeah. So, um, I'm proud of all the chapters. I'm proud of all the work I did, but. Uh... I think that, for me, the Palestine piece was most powerful for me because it it I really started it look, I changed my mind on the topic in many ways through the course of doing the research for that piece. Um, I uh, I just hadn't considered the full scope of what's happening in Palestine before actually sitting down to examine it and to talk to Palestinians and learn about what what they're dealing with. And I, I just learned such a tremendous amount and have such tremendous respect for for the people that I interviewed and, um, sympathize with their, with their situation. Um, and I try to remain, look, no one's impartial, obviously it's impossible to be neutral on, on, on really any subject outside of mathematics or something like that. But, um, look, I mean, I try to, I try to understand that, um, know the Palestinian authority itself is like massively corrupt and and one of the reasons why the Palestinians are where they are where they are today is is that that arafat and the others basically traded off all these economic freedoms for for like you know perceived national sovereignty um through the paris accord and uh i try to go into that which is something that i just like had no i did not know i did not know about this so great and actually a lot of palestinians i talked to didn't even know about the paris accord so it's not really that widely known or talked about, um, so learning about that was fascinating, um, and you know, understanding that, of course, like yeah, yeah, like the Israeli military occupation is is the is the major issue, um, but but also that it's got this kind of, you know, the PA is kind of like this client state, and and it's just it's 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 complicated. But the point is that. You know, Israelis Israelis you know also have financial privilege. Like the you know in in every chapter, you start to realize that like there's financial privilege all over the place. Like Americans happen to have the, the most, but clearly Israelis have it over Palestinians and South Africans have it over Zimbabweans. And you know it, it you know you you can kind of go all the way down, right? And the fun part for me is that Bitcoin just obliterates financial privilege. Like it just it just eliminates it um, at the base. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody's gonna be equal. No, it, that, that's, it's not a redistributionary technology. This is not some sort of Marxist creation. This is a, a technology that secures property rights and actually reinforces capitalism, free markets and, and open commerce. Um, but it doesn't allow for this like politicization of money at the base layer, where like some people get a better deal than others uh, or, you know, some people can benefit more than others. No, it's just the same rules for everybody. And that to me is just so, so powerful.
0: Uh, I'd love to, if you don't mind for some of our audience who maybe isn't as familiar with what exactly happened with the Paris Accords and how that affected Palestine, do you mind sharing a little bit of that?
1: Sure. So look, uh, essentially 1967 onwards, there was military occupation in, 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 in what are what is known as Palestine. And, um, the Israeli tactic essentially was to encourage dependency on Israel. So like they were they had this tactic of basically uh, making the economic sovereignty uh, and dependence of like Palestinian cities and communities less and weaker and and making their dependence on the Israeli economy stronger. So the whole point was that they didn't want Palestinians to produce anything. They wanted them to buy things from Israel and work in Israel. and that's what ended up Happening, they ended up, you know, kind of crushing the Palestinian agricultural state uh, and all these things. And you know, the eighties were a rough time in the region. There was like extreme inflation in Israel. Uh, the economic situation was was bad all over the place, and it laid the groundwork for what was known as the intifada at the end of the 80s. And, and this was actually kind of like a almost like a financial protest. Um, a lot of what the intifada was was like trying to become less dependent on Israel. So trying to grow your own vegetables and 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 farms and, and trying to become agriculturally independent from from Israel. Um, and obviously it metastasized into a huge political movement. Um, it it worked in a way previous to the Intifada uh, the Israelis made money on the occupation but they actually profited on it post-intifada it became very expensive it became it's became this whole security state thing it's become an enormous expense for them which unfortunately for many years the American government literally paid for but um but the the, the point is that it became very expensive and it actually brought the them to the negotiating table but you know unfortunately what happened is that Uh, in in gifting like the Palestinian territories I guess political independence in in some sort of pseudo way with Arafat uh, in the early 90s through the you know through the the Oslo process okay Um, what was not talked about was that was that there was an element of the negotiations called the Paris Accord which basically ceded Israel total control over every economic aspect of the Palestinian territories of Palestine so whether you look at like how goods have to come in and out. Whether you look at uh, the currency that the Palestinians would use, it was going to be the shekel. The, The banking system, do they have their own central bank? Can they conduct their own monetary policy? No. So all these things from a monetary and financial point of view were ceded to the Israelis. Work permits, who controls how many Palestinians can work in Israel, all these things, everything was to be controlled by Israel. And it was supposed to be a temporary thing that expired at the end of the 90s never expired. So you know many decades later we're still living in the same paradigm. Um, so it can be very frustrating, I think, for people uh, when they start to learn about this. Um, and you know what? like what's the UN gonna do? Or, or like, you know moving forward, like how do you get it, how do you defeat the Paris Protocol? They're going to try and do it with a CBDC or some, something like that. They're going to come out and say, we're gonna make a Palestine coin or something or like a Palestinian currency or whatever. But guess what? That's not going to be helpful for Palestinians. First of all, the PA is like massively corrupt. Um, forget Hamas. This is a literal terrorist organization. So, so you have these two institutions that are like hopeless on that front. They're never going to like make sound money decisions for their people. Okay, so that's that's just out the window. And any sort of like UN-led, IMF-led Palestinian currency, it's going to be a charity case. No one's actually going to want to own that debt or, or provide loans there. Like it's 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 just kind of doomed um and 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 the worst part is that if they try to digitize this and and get rid of cash they take away freedom like cash is freedom for palestinians that they have a cash economy that way they can do stuff without the pa or the israeli military knowing what they're doing (laughs) like that's like one of the last pieces of dignity they have left is going to get taken from them so so here and along comes bitcoin and you know bitcoin is just so well suited to be this like potentially from what i understand from what i heard from palestinians like maybe it can help because you know, maybe it can be a currency that Palestinian stores accept around the world, or in Palestine, or in 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 Jerusalem, uh, or in Israel. Um, was an idea that one of the people I interviewed was talking about. It could almost be like a like a solidarity measure, uh, and maybe start to create kind of a circular economy there. And I even in the interview, I even talked to an Israeli settler who who the who the Palestinians that I interviewed probably would consider a war criminal or whatever. And this guy, like, uh, you know, we talked, he's in Ramallah, you know, okay. I he could see the freaking. he's right outside of Ramallah. You can see it from his window. He's, he's, and he's benefiting from this like state sponsored occupation thing. And what was weird is he was like all about Bitcoin too. Um, He was like, listen, the Israeli shekel is going to crash against Bitcoin this year, this, this decade. And <laughs> he's like, he, he had this, he's very religious, right? He's like, so he, he thinks fiat money is immoral and all these other things. It was just so interesting to 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 hear um, his perspective also. Um, and he's been—it's interesting because he's trying to do business in Bitcoin with all the Palestinians he knows. And I don't know; it's just a very interesting t- topic. But but the fact that even there are some like settlers who are like the most anti-Palestinian person you could imagine being pro-Bitcoin makes 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 for an interesting experience. So I thought I thought the whole thing was really. Uh, fascinating journey for me to to go through, and especially to learn about Gaza and just what a disaster uh, and and just it's worse than you know like it's worse it can only be worse than what you've read like it's not like sure there's a lot of fake news in and around the area, of course, like any conflict zone, but you the reality on the ground is is absolutely tragic um and 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 worse than you can probably imagine, just in terms of capital stock and just in terms of just real GDP and economic productivity and all these things, like it's a dying, it's a dying community. It's dying, it's shrinking. It's very, very sad. Um, so it was incredible to be able to talk to someone inside Gaza and have a conversation with them about about why they're why they're turning to Bitcoin. Um so even in like one of the world's darkest places, there's just like this little bit of light. I mean, the guy called it literally a checkpoint that was always open. I thought that was super powerful. So um, yeah, I, I would encourage folks to, to read that piece. And I'm sure some people will get pissed off by it, but it is what it is, you know.
0: I want to really explain this for those who maybe like some of that went over your head or you were just so angry by the topic. <laughs> what Alex just described is, in my opinion, a step further than what we saw in Canada where Justin Trudeau was shutting down or inhibiting people's access to their bank accounts. This is a foreign government, not only dictating how or what you can transact financially, but just economically, anything and everything that can be under that umbrella, a foreign country is going to dictate to you. And then on top of that, it is, I think, don't mean to bolster this. I My heart goes out to everyone who lives under those circumstances in Gaza, anywhere else in the world dealing with conflict, but these are adversarial countries. You are literally giving your adversary the right to d- dictate how your economy is going to function. Um, I'm sorry, we live in America where we sanction anyone we don't like. What do you actually think is going to happen, guys? Um, as Bitcoiners, this should upset us regardless. And there's another thing you touched on just now, um, that kind of ties back to what you said at the very beginning. There is privilege everywhere in the world. In America, we have the most. In Israel, they have some. But even in some of these countries like Palestine or where my family is from in Iran, they may not necessarily benefit from the fiat system. But within their own country and their own fiat system, there are those who benefit and have the privilege. Oh, there's
1: to- a hierarchy for sure, man.
0: Exactly. Um, and with that, it is fascinating that like, we see the conversation around CBDCs, we see some of them getting tricked into going and putting money into BitCash instead of Bitcoin and whatnot. I'm curious your thoughts on just how do we separate the corrupt people in power from Bitcoin and not allowing them to corrupt however they introduce Bitcoin into their country? While Bitcoin may be decentralized, it's very easy for them to turn around and say, this is our wallet system here in the country, and it's going to be controlled and regulated by the government. I'm just curious your thoughts, if you mm-hmm. have any on that.
1: Yeah, well, obviously, I thought a lot about it, and it's it's a little nuanced. Um, I think you're going to have this decade out in front of us where some governments adopt Bitcoin, and the users of the Bitcoin network aren't really going to agree with everything that those governments do. Like to give a, obvious examples you've got two governments that are like let's say formally using bitcoin right now at a very yes you can argue the Singaporeans are invested in Anchorage you can you can argue some of these countries have some bitcoin exposure through microstrategy and the balance sheets all these things you can argue that there's like paramilitary probably confiscatory use of bitcoin in places like Venezuela and North Korea things like that but like as far as like public uh, revealed use Obviously the Ukrainian government obviously used raising money in Bitcoin uh, publicly and and then El Salvador, right? And what's so interesting is that the Bitcoin community online at least has very strong feelings about each of these places <laughs> and 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 guess what Maybe Russia's next. I don't know. It sounds like as we're having this conversation, maybe they're gonna accept Bitcoin payments for energy. I, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I mean it seems like maybe a little something we want to wait and see if that's actually happening or not um makes sense to me um from a realist perspective but i think what's going to start quickly happening is that over this decade that institutions and people are going to start using bitcoin that you don't like as a bitcoiner and you're just going to have to accept that that is bitcoin's adoption mechanism um what i tried to lay out in one of the chapters of the book is that is that it's basically a trojan horse um And we're going to have some, some sweet Trojan horse merch, by the way, in Miami at the, uh, at the HRF booth. Uh, So come by and grab, grab your Trojan horse, uh, freedom, go up uh, merch. We're going to have pins and hats and shirts. I'm psyched about that. But the point is that it's true. Like um, you, you're going to adopt Bitcoin most likely from self-interest, whether or not, whether you think it's going to be a good investment for you or your family, or whether you, whether you need to use it or or whether as a company or sovereign, you feel like it gives you some advantage over anyone else or God knows how many different reasons you could have to adopt Bitcoin. But, but probably like an altruistic view of empowering people in other countries or other communities is not why you're going to adopt Bitcoin, right? So that's like the side effect or the externality of your decision is that you're strengthening this freedom network and that that's so, so powerful. So... I think what ends up happening is you're going to have all kinds of unsavory characters enter the space. Unsavory being, from your let's say from your perspective, um, and guess what? They're going to use it. There's there's a lot of you know. Look, there's going to be. It's interesting. There's 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 a lot of Bitcoiners who are um, who were troubled like me, troubled and and, and conflicted over Bukele and who said, okay, well, clearly we give the guy credit because he chose Bitcoin over CBDC. That's just an incredibly important decision. And if he doesn't screw this up, he'll be remembered forever as the first nation state leader to adopt Bitcoin. I mean, that's a freaking George Washington level accomplishment historically, um, potentially, you know, if we look at this 20, 30 years from now. But at the same time, like politically speaking in that country, he's like swiftly removing checks on his own power. So we'll just have to see how that goes. At the same time, you, you, you see a lot of Bitcoiners really upset over the Ukrainian government using Bitcoin to defend itself from Russia. A lot of people are really upset about this and they don't think that Bitcoin should be used for weapons. Or... Guess what? Bitcoin doesn't care, dude. Like it just doesn't care about your feelings about what it should be used for. It's gonna be used everywhere by everybody. And that's just something that I that I feel quite strongly about. The good news is that it's sort of asymmetric though in terms of it's like what it does to the society around it. Like like Bitcoin is free speech, free movement, open capital markets, property rights. That's really what it is at its core. So over time, that's gonna accrue benefits to open societies that are willing to like play by those rules, right? It's gonna be bad for tyrants who have systems that are closed, isolated, closed capital markets, who confiscate things and who don't have any free speech. Bitcoin's gonna be a bear of a problem for these people. And that's probably why we saw the CCP get rid of Bitcoin mining last year, right before their hundredth anniversary of the of the Communist Party. They they don't vibe with it. It's not harmonious, it's not pure, it's not clean, it's not controllable, it's not easily surveillable. All the things they want to do, social engineering, all this stuff, it's kind of contra to all those things. So they don't like it very much. And this to me also explains why Mr. Putin didn't. Have Bitcoin as an immediate part of his plan, which obviously retrospect he should have like clearly, but he didn't because guess what? He's been watching his biggest rival, Alexei Navalny, raise money through Bitcoin um for years, for years. It's been a lifeline for the people who are critical of him. So so obviously he's he's been torn over that. And you could see that even pre-the-invasion, there was like all kinds of different competing reports about would Russia do this or that, or it was just unclear what the hell was going on. Um but at the end of the day, I think that Bitcoin kind of presents, it presents challenges for, it's an extraordinary freedom tool for individuals, no question, around the world. But it presents thorny challenges for, for, for governments, for sure. So that's kind of the way I would look at it.
2: My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history.
0: I mean, we we talk about it ad nauseum within the Bitcoin ecosystem and echo chamber, how this is the purest free market that we we have seen created for us. Uh, And it does things beyond just financial freedom. And it gives us these opportunities. Uh, It's almost like a playbook I'd love to, I, I know that in the book and in these essays, you don't really delve into Russia a lot, but if, if I could for a moment poke mm-hmm. your brain, because you had an essay entitled The, the Hidden Cost of the Petrodollar, mm-hmm. um, and we're, we're witnessing in real time conversations around pricing oil in different currencies, Saudi Arabia saying that they're potentially going to do a petro yuan, these rumors spir- uh, spiraling out of Russia right now that they'll accept potentially Bitcoin from friends even though Bitcoin doesn't care if you're a friend or foe, if, you're, if you have the coins and you're going to send it, it'll, it'll be sent and validated. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on the game theory of if Russia does, in fact, start to accept Bitcoin and what that looks like for the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, well, there's like the macro and the micro. Um, again, the reason why I think the government will be hesitant to go fully in, aside from the fact that like... You know, it's a new radical technology that's only been around for 12 years. We're talking about a culture that's been around for a long time, right? So this is like a new thing for for, for a nation to deal with. Um, but I think that, uh, again, like, okay, so if they start doing this and they start accepting, let's say, Bitcoin for oil or something like that, okay, that has this trickle-down effect, a network effect across all of the um, people who work for the oil company who know who now, who now know this, and then all of a sudden, all the people who uh, are relatives of the people who work at the oil company, people who read about this in the news. I mean, it all kind of depends in some ways on how the propaganda machine inside Russia plays it. Like if Putin is proud of this and he's like, and it starts getting out on Russia today across across international audiences and then through all the domestic machinery, like w- what the outcome is, is, tons of Russians buying Bitcoin because they're like, oh, shit, this is actually real. I should get some. Okay. So what's interesting is there's like a double side. There's there's like a, a two sides to this. Sure, maybe the Russian government benefits in the short term from this in some way. But like you get this immediate effect that's inseparable of the population of Russia also getting more involved in Bitcoin and of Putin losing control over the country in that way. So it's it's got this extremely interesting tension to it, which I think in the long run is really good for freedom because again, the more Bitcoin adoption more, more, more widely around the world, the less, the less power centralized authorities have. Um, there are limits to that, of course, and it's nuanced, and it depends on what percentage of people do self-custody and all these different things that we could get into, but, but big picture, you know, broader Bitcoin adoption is more freedom and less central control, generally speaking. So I'd be I'm bullish on it for freedom, although you know it is going to be tricky in, in the near term uh, from an optics point of view, and and you know it, it's going to be a delicate delicate. I mean, we just have to just be aware that there's no black and white take here. Um, that you, you have to just respect the fact that this is a complex situation with regard to, to 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 Bitcoin adoption. But I think it's bullish, very bullish for freedom, long you know, medium to long term.
0: Use code YTMAG to get 10% off of your conference tickets. Alex, what he had mentioned earlier about the Trojan horse stuff, uh, we have a bazaar that we have set up. He will be signing books and selling some uh, exclusive merchandise down there. So be sure to, if you are attending the conference, come down and check it out. Um, Diving back into a lot of this stuff, uh, one of my favorite sort of stories and passages that you did was actually the woman from Afghanistan, and how you highlight how she had to leave the country because just the way the laws are written, she can't get access to the banking systems. Um, Talk to us a little bit about this woman's story and just sort of what you are hoping to see transpire out of that uh, region of the world.
1: Yeah, what was interesting is that Roya Mapub, who I've known her for a long time and I didn't know she was into Bitcoin when I first met her, um, maybe seven, eight years ago. Had no idea. She doesn't wear it on her sleeve. She, she, she. Her work is first and foremost about educating uh, women and girls in Afghanistan. And, and, and lo and behold, a couple years after I met her, I was at an event with her, and I, the topic came up, and I just started asking her about it, and I start to unravel this story, which is so fascinating. Um, and I eventually, obviously, uh, you know, it's interesting. I did a lot of my interviews with Roya in 2020. And then i I was you know, thinking about using it for a book, um, et cetera. and then and then the Kabul falls, and I'm like, oh my God, like I need to go back to her and get an update. And so I did another round of interviews with her. and um yeah, that the chapter in the book is the product of that. And um, no, it's extraordinary. I mean, she's an o g Cypherpunk. Uh, her company was called Citadel Software in twenty twenty thirteen in, in uh, Afghanistan. she honed her teeth on literally a project called the Silk Road um, in Afghanistan. Uh, There's so many interesting um, kind of coincidences to her story. But um, at the end of the day, she needed, we talk about Bitcoin as protest money, as refugee money, as freedom money, as whatever money, you know, for her, it was, it was women's money. I mean, it was money that women could use, whereas the fiat system didn't work for them. Like their, you know, husbands and brothers and uncles would, would, it wasn't necessarily illegal for these people to open bank accounts, but like it was highly discouraged. There was a lot of social pressure, et cetera, et cetera, highly conservative society. Right. So, so she ends up really tapping into the idea that a lot of, a lot of the people she knew though had cell phones, they had Facebook, like at the time. Okay. So she could pay them in Bitcoin. Someone introduced her in late, I think late 2012 to the concept and she was like, why not? And and the key part was that her sister would buy back Bitcoin from the women that she paid um, in, in exchange for goods or services or, or fiat, um, that was the key mechanism that helped it make it work. So that the women could be paid in Bitcoin, they would save it in Bitcoin, they would hold it themselves, self custody wallets. Okay, back then, just, just just kind of much more rudimentary than we have today, but like self custody. And then when they wanted to buy something, like uh, new materials to make clothing or, or to buy food or whatever, they would go to Roy's sister send the Bitcoin to her and she would give them whatever at some ex- agreed upon exchange rate. Generally speaking, there were other brokers too, but apparently her sister was one of the big ones. And, you know, that was cool because her sister ends up, hold up holding on to that Bitcoin and finances her education at Cornell, like years later, which is an amazing story. Um, and then, you know, one of these other women that she pays and works with, works with her for about a year and a half and ends up earning like <laughs> You know, like like one and a half Bitcoin or something like that. And you know, the average annual income in Afghanistan is a couple hundred bucks. So we're talking about um, you know, just just crazy life-changing amounts of money for people over time. And this person had to flee Afghanistan due to political threats, settled in Germany and and was able to bring the seed phrase with her, um, and you know, started a new life there, and she's there now, uh, from what I understand, doing pretty well. So it's like um. It's just really crazy. And, and, you know, Roya uh, started this operation in the summer of spring, summer of 13. Right. So Bitcoin had just broken a hundred dollars. It was like cruising. It was going crazy. She felt on top of the world and then it crashed right all the way back down. It's like you know all eventually you know 200 something so she had to make everybody whole everybody accused her of being a criminal and a thief like it was brutal and that that the early days obviously were brutal i mean we talk about it all the time but anybody who held through the early day it wasn't easy you know everybody says oh you were lucky no it was not 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 so but but broya like couldn't shake this idea of the freedom money aspect of it and she kept it as an educational piece in the programs for the people she worked with and you know what it uh it ended up Obviously, over time, being an enormously important investment. And then one of the things she told me, which is in the story in the book, which is is really powerful, is that she flew to Kabul about a year ago and tried to convince her parents to buy some Bitcoin um, because she was worried, you know, uh, and and they they didn't. They procrastinated or whatever. And guess what? They had to flee Kabul also, and they didn't weren't able to bring their stuff with them. So she feels some regret over that, and that lights the fire for her passion to continue trying to educate young women in Afghanistan about why they should take the lead on this technology. So just an incredible story for me uh, in, in, in many different ways and really opened my eyes and inspires me a lot. The, the, she's definitely a hero. So uh, we'll see. I'm always excited to, to, to be able to share Roya's story when I can and would encourage people to reach out to her and, and try, to, try to chip in with what she's doing. Yeah.
0: Disney, that is... Someone you yeah. make a movie about. <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe the first
1: uh, Disney Bitcoin movie is about Roya. That would be pretty cool. I agree.
0: You joke, but I did just send a text to someone at Disney. So <laughs> this is this is now a, a goal of mine because like, That's hearing it. you talk about that sent chills down my spine. Like we joke, yeah. we, we genuinely joke from a place of privilege in America that Bitcoin is freedom. But we have so much freedom here in this country that like it goes over our head. Um, yeah. I, I'm a little curious on your thoughts on some of the FUD that goes around, specifically in regards to energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every single person seems to have their hot take on what Bitcoin is or how it operates or, or whatever. Um, I'd love just initially sort of what are, what is one or two pieces of FUD that just like, grinds your gears that you just like cut someone off and you're like absolutely not you're wrong and here's why.
1: Oh man, there's so many. Uh I have I have the FUD the different FUD dice here, of course. Um I think that uh well of course the China control one was was big. Uh having to argue against people who were promoting that idea for a long time. That one fixed itself last year. So that was that one's just off the FUD dice. So that was that was pretty good. Um, I mean, the Tether one is interesting. I mean, people continue to think that Bitcoin's value comes from Tether. It, it just kind of betrays a lack of understanding of how Tether works. And even if Tether is not backed, like, guess what? The market thinks it's backed. So, and I, I just always thought that that was just one of the weaker FUD points. Like, if, you're, if your thesis for not investing in Bitcoin is that you think it's propped up by Tether, like, that's going to be something you regret big time. A lot of these are older, but like the, the it doesn't scale. One seems like quite obviously hilarious at this time. Uh, guess what? It, it scaled. Uh, <laughs> now we have two hundred million users. So uh, see you later. Uh, that, that one that one didn't work so well. Um, but a lot a lot of these attacks were were really silly. Um, I guess the one that I spend the most time on is is the environment one, like because it's honestly the most important fud. It's the most effective fud. Um, I mean, I, I don't think. Just to be realistic, that it's c- c- possible to really stop Bitcoin, but um this is the one where it's gonna receive the most uh attacks. Uh and it and it, and what's so interesting and why I spend time in it is because it's it's a clearly wrong FUD. Like um, and and it it's a complex topic, but when you start to understand what Bitcoin is and how it's just essentially, I mean it's many different things, but I was recently in a Bitcoin mine in Norway, uh, and it was just this extraordinary thing where I was—it's just you know freezing Norwegian winter—and they have this amazing giant um, compound. It's next; it's all hydro powered. It's next to a dam. Norway's grid is one hundred percent green. Um, and um, sitting there, and the, they have perforated the side of this giant warehouse, so this cold air is coming in. It's getting sucked in through the massive number of machines. Um, and then and then and then what what in that context what the bitcoin miners really are are heaters because they're just heating this air it's just a little machine that's this heating air and making it warmer and they're capturing the heat the externality and then they're drying wood with it that the local forestry industry is bringing over and they get to have dry wood for free previously they'd have to like ship the wood to somewhere and have it like treated it was like insane so This is just like this amazing externality of the Bitcoin mining. So Bitcoin mining is is, is as deep and nuanced as Bitcoin itself, in my opinion. And I think that one of the interesting things about it is in this context, literally, it, all it is is a heater. It's in a northern climate, like a Bitcoin miner, is a heater that also happens to print you the hardest money in the world. That's like a nice little perk. But it's just a heater, and and you know they're they're taking that heat and they're doing stuff with it. They're drying wood. They're going to dry seaweed. They're going to do all these things. So I think in northern climates, or or I guess far southern climates, you're going to see some interesting stuff, a lot of interesting stuff done with with with, with Bitcoin mining over the years. Um, in the other climates, you're just going to see stuff like immersion and other techniques to, to, to make it not a heater. And and then maybe it has other externalities, but I, I, I think that lacking an understanding, you know, you got to go to a Bitcoin mine. You got to kind of just feel it. How crazy it is that all these machines around you are um, implementing the monetary policy for this thing and securing this network and acting as a transaction processor for, uh, a money system that doesn't doesn't have a centralized um, you know company. It's just incredible. Like it really is really moving actually to to go and, and just think about what it is what you're seeing. Um, it's very, very cool. So I think the the mining flood is 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 the worst, um especially when it's kind of so obvious to me that that it'll help um, spark so much innovation in renewable energy in, in the coming decade when you just think about the fact that miners use the cheapest energy they can get. They're greedy. It's self-interested. You know, I've no, I've, I know, I have no offense. I have a lot of awesome miner friends. I'm sure they would agree with that, that assessment. Um, uh, and they do a great service to the world, but they don't have to be altruistic. They can just do it out of self-interest. It's just the externality of what they're doing is providing a massive service to the world, which is, which is really quite cool actually. Um, so, I think we're just going to get into these endless arguments over this. And honestly, the whole thing is so ridiculous when you consider that the United States government uh, phased out optionally enough nuclear power in the last 18 months to power essentially the entire Bitcoin network and is is in the process of replacing it with fossils. Like what, like, so like, what do you actually care about? Do you care about the environment or do you care about attacking Bitcoin? Like again, Bitcoin has a smaller carbon footprint than clothing dryers in the United States or, um, or cruise ships. Like what, like what do you actually care about? Like at the end of the day, you know, the FUD comes from a place of dislike of Bitcoin, not of like any sort of neutral scientific approach. So I anticipate I'll be spending a lot of time in that area over the coming few years.
0: I've said it before and I'll say it again. The next iteration of green energy and more specifically, green energy capture utilization will come out of Bitcoin mining, because as you said, uh, I'm just going to have to talk like this. Apologies to everyone who actually can see half of my face. Bitcoin miners are going to be most incentivized to find the cheapest, cleanest forms of energy. Maybe not the cleanest, but in this next iteration of when we look for what comes after solar, what comes after wind and hydropower, I genuinely believe some of this innovation is going to come from Bitcoin miners. Uh, Alex, I will lock arms with you hand in hand and figure out, how or when, uh, whenever we can be helpful, the, the FUD has to stop in some way, shape or form. Uh, I need to figure out what's going on with my microphone. I'm going to stop talking for a second, hand it back to you. Um, Alex, can you touch a little bit on Africa? We spent a little bit of time in the Middle East right now. And I know some of the other regions you talked about uh, and explored were in Africa. Do you mind maybe discussing one or two of the stories out of there?
1: I, I started the... book project by interviewing three people that I found fascinating and inspiring in in Ethiopia and Sudan and Nigeria. Um, But last year, I stumbled across this monetary phenomenon that is just so unknown in the wider world or outside of Western and Central Africa. And I ended up making it a chapter of the book because I thought it was so important to talk about. And that's this idea of monetary colonialism, and um, just this crazy fact that the French government, as a relic of its own colonial uh, system of, in Africa, uh, still controls uh, the finances and currency of 15 nations, uh, which number, you know, more than 180 million people, which today is, you know, two and a half or three times the size of France. And, you know, it resembles economic apartheid because you have decision makers from a smaller country controlling the currency of a much larger population. And, you know, it didn't start out like that. It was just, you know, these countries actually had a smaller population than France at the beginning, but with birth rates as they are, by the end of the decade, it might be like 700 million people in these countries or something like that, or not by the end of the decade, but in a few decades, basically. And France will be maybe at 80 million people. So it's just getting more and more exaggerated, the number of people which have to live under this colonial french franc system. Um, So I really went down the rabbit hole on that and learned a lot from people who live under it. And what was really interesting to find out was that a lot of these... um, Democracy movements and human rights movements in West Africa are financial movements. Um their rallying cry is that they want to be free from the French franc. That's like the thing that they kind of unite around um, is that they don't want to use the French currency anymore. They want to use their own currency. And we have to kind of be mindful of that tension because, let's say they become free from France. Well, is their new ruler going to be any better is the question. And it's not clear, you know, some countries have done decently well like Ghana with their own monetary policy. Um, but many countries in the region, you know, are authoritarian and, and have had terrible currency issues. So I think that uh, what's interesting is to hear from some people who are from countries like Togo or Senegal explain that they think Bitcoin's the future. And they think that it's the it's the currency of decolonization. and. I just thought that was very powerful and that um, there's just a lot of literature about decolonization in Africa that relates to money and monetary control. And there's a famous cartoon by an Ivorian uh, cartoonist which shows um, de Gaulle and the French uh, waving and saying goodbye and they're like their ship is leaving and the Ivorians are partying on their ship but underneath the water there's a rope that's connecting them and it's the CFA currency and it's true it's like um the the you know nominal colonialism is done but the 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 actual kind of control mechanism remains and until recently like like it was so intense like these countries had to keep all of their reserves all of their national income in paris where the french got essentially the luxury of like uh, low rates for borrowing and then high rates for lending, and it, it's it's just nuts. They they had first right refusal on uh, selling expensive exports and importing cheap goods. Like the whole thing is like is really really twisted. Honestly, it's it's just it's a shameful system for the French for sure. Um, and and it it was really interesting to to hear that, especially the two characters I profiled. Uh, in the in the story, who will both be speaking at bitcoin twenty twenty two, which is really cool, um Fode Dieppe and and Frida Naburema, that they both believe that Bitcoin is like this way forward, was was really, really neat and interesting to hear because I, you know, in the book, i I learned from so many critics of the current monetary system. You know, m- many of them are on the left. I think that in some ways, Uh, even Marxist or leftist thinkers have been like very powerfully accurate about the problems of the dollar system or dollar hegemony or even monetary colonialism, where we disagree is the solution. (laughs) Like, I don't like, you know, I read this amazing book, which I, which I quote in the book in in my book about the CFA system in West Africa. And, you know, the authors, like their proposals for what to do next are like, in my view, just insufficient. It's just like, it's just keeping the wheel going. It's like just somebody else, new clothes, same person it's, we have to break the wheel, right? So Bitcoin breaks the wheel. And I think that that's what these people realize. And, um, I think that there was this, uh, uh, pretty powerful quote from, um, yeah, Hill Harper. He was quoted actually in the New York times article about Bitcoin 2021 last year. And he says they can't colonize Bitcoin. And it's just like, what an awesome quote. It's like, (laughs) so I just think it's true. They can't. And, Let's use that to our advantage. So I'd say that's really the, one of the more interesting stories. I mean, I have another story in the book about the Congo, about the DRC and about how the, there's an incredible nature reserve there that's Bitcoin mining on hydro energy and, and using it to power the park, which is just like mind blowing. So um, I, I, that, that, that is just so cool um, that they're able to turn flowing water, this plentiful resource around them into, into um, infrastructure investment and all kinds of things for them. Um, and they started a few years ago and it's doing really well for them. So there's, there's lots of cool, cool little, um, insights into, 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 into different African issues in the book for sure.
0: I am hoping my microphone. No, I see. I am hoping this microphone works better on the spaces. Now I'm getting nods from our producer, uh, Alex, I did not mean to laugh in the middle of that. The reason I laughed and I I messaged this to our producer. I come from the film industry. I used to be an agent. The only other time in my entire life I have heard the phrase first right of refusal is for a first look deal for a TV production company with a studio. And the studio has the first right of refusal. Like the fact that a country has that as an economic policy is-
1: Yeah, no, no, no. If you're like selling cocoa from Ivory Coast, like you got to offer, like essentially the way it works is like, Get offered to the French first, and then they can refuse it, and then you can sell it to somebody else. Um, and just, 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 I try, I go through how it works. Like, if China buy, if China buys coffee from the Ivory Coast, like how it all goes through Paris, it all goes through this currency system. And essentially, French authorities at the end of the day give the income, uh, and they, they like credit the bank account like locally. There's like these local central banks, and the whole thing is so screwed up because they've tried to like decolonize the CFA franc by like the currency notes no longer have french people on them and they no longer have european buildings on them they have african people and african buildings but it's like that's just all bullshit it's just all surface level um reform it doesn't actually reform what's underneath so i mean watching what happens in the cfa countries is going to be really interesting in the next you know few years and look i think it's uh you know the piece that piece made a really big difference i think and and i'm happy to include it in the book and the The version of which there was an early version that 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 was a Bitcoin magazine um, essay, which was later expanded on and put in the book. and then um, and then there's uh, because of that essay, I was invited to write an article in foreign policy about the topic, which, was pretty cool. And I mean, obviously I don't get uh, seven to 10,000 words like my friends at Bitcoin mag give me, but um, I had about a thousand words, but uh, no, I, and my, I, one of my colleagues at the human rights foundation is from Mali and he's from one of these CFA countries. So he and I wrote this piece for foreign policy on it. So what's been really interesting is a lot of the writing and reporting I've been doing that, that has gone into the book has made huge impact outside of the Bitcoin community, which, which is just super cool. Like the petrodollar piece, like really, really like made it out there the monetary colonial colonialism piece the check your financial privilege piece like these pieces which which ended up becoming these core parts of the book um really have made a big difference and i think now that they're part of a book they're gonna hopefully make a bigger one um if we can just you know push the book the right way so um i'm i'm yeah excited about about where we are
0: Uh, I love that someone who has actually spent the time really researching, learning, and understanding from the people of these cultures is the one who is actually helping to write and educate on foreign policy, almost as though that's the way it should be. Um, One thing I'm kind of curious about, uh, the regions you focus on are Africa and the Middle East. Both of these areas of the world are very rich in different natural resources. However, have been inhibited by colonizers and Western countries trying to come in and take these resources out from under these people. Uh, it seems as though Bitcoin is that next opportunity as a resource outlet for these people and uh, these in these different regions. How how are you? Uh, approaching it from the lens of keeping them safe and protected do you worry or fear at a certain point if they if these regions get too powerful with bitcoin western countries will turn around if they're not on a bitcoin standard and and try to usurp them again
1: yeah well there's that you know that fidelity report that came out a few months ago which was so shocking where they're basically saying that the countries that enter in earlier will benefit their citizenry and countries that come in later will will suffer the consequences i mean it seems kind of obvious once you understand bitcoin but if you don't understand bitcoin it seems crazy right um but i do think that yeah look i didn't look i don't think el salvador was on anybody's bingo card pre you know 2020 that it was going to be the first country to, to do this um i think most people thought it would be some sort of rogue regime you know uh, when I say that, I mean, like from the American perspective, like that, it would be some country under sanction, not, not an ally that uses the dollar, like that, that was like a crazy idea. So, um, it makes sense in retrospect, but like at the time it wasn't, it was not one of the countries that was being predicted as like the first country to adopt Bitcoin. That's for sure. So, um, yeah, I think again, inevitably we see like countries that we don't agree with adopt this thing. Um, and, and I, 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 I People are going to look at it in various different ways, but the way I would like to to, to make the comparison is with Cuba. So Cuban government, uh, I have spent my career helping people who are fighting against the Cuban government, p- peacefully, obviously, but you know, helping human rights activists in Cuba. This is a very repressive government. Um, yes, there's a U.S. embargo that also plays a role in the suffering of Cubans, but this is no excuse for a like, stone-cold dictatorship, essentially, that does... Horribly cruel things. One of the things I learned about when I was doing my Cuba piece for the for the that later made it into the book is um, is that the Cuban government's one of their one of their top three income streams is from indentured servitude of medical workers that they send abroad and as like basically medical slaves. It's insane. Um, so this 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 government is so cruel and unusual. And um, what's interesting is that they they ended up having to bring in the internet to Cuba. Like there was no internet in Cuba for a long time. Um, and I talk about this in in the book, um, but uh, they ended up having to bring it in. And you know what? Like, was that a good move? Absolutely. It's a great move. And it, it it allowed Cubans to be more connected to the outside world and, and gave them more freedom and all these things. Like it's a move that you would celebrate, um, but it doesn't mean you have to celebrate the the rulers. It's kind of like, when the Saudis give more, more give more, give quote unquote, give more rights to women, this is like, I mean, yes, of course, that's a good thing, but this should have had him in the first place and we shouldn't be celebrating like MBS. When King John signed the Magna Carta, was it a good thing? Yes, but we don't have to celebrate King John because he was some tyrant, right? So I think in all cases, you're going to have Bitcoin adoption come in countries. We are going to want to credit that achievement because that's going to be good for the people who live there over time. But we shouldn't necessarily have to praise the leader. Um, I just think that that's like a very important distinction, which seems lost on a lot of people. Um, and I don't view—it's all about cause and effect. Like, like, okay, did did Bukele? Was it Bitcoin's? Was it Bitcoin's like responsibility, or was it Bukele's responsibility? Like, it's kind of interesting. Like, Bitcoin's almost this like. Organism in a way. It's like this weird thing. And it 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 made the jump. Like, (laughs) like when you think about how viruses spread it, like it, it jumped from one species to another. Okay. So it jumps from individuals to nations. It made the jump there. Um, Bukele had whatever incentive he had to do it. Doesn't really matter to me. Um, but he chose Bitcoin and now now Bitcoin's up there, and now it's going to spread to other countries eventually from there. But it's like, I mean, that's just part of its adoption mechanism, as we covered earlier um but yeah i mean look again we're we're entering into a, a time when look this bitcoin community that we have and i know there's a lot of debate about whether it exists or not but for me it definitely exists um it, it, it's it's a ephemeral thing in 20 years it won't exist everybody will use bitcoin and 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 it'll collapse it will be a it'll be a Either a fond or a not fond memory, depending on who you are. <laughs> but um, this 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 community of people who who are oriented around Bitcoin, um, it, it, it's 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 a thing that will only exist for a certain period of time. Um, and then and then it'll, and then it'll you know, it'll become something that's just part of our lives, and, and we'll move on. But um, I I think that it's important to know that we're about to enter into a phase. Whether it's with freaking altcoins or dictators or God knows who, who, peep, you may not be interested in them, but they're going to be interested in Bitcoin. And this is just such an important part of Bitcoin's adoption mechanism. Like, obviously, that's how it's going to work. So, like, what, maybe you don't like, um, maybe you were skeptical of Michael Saylor, or maybe you don't like Elon, or maybe you... Don't like Jack Dorsey, or maybe you don't like Bukele, or maybe you don't like the Ukrainian government, or maybe you don't like Putin, or whatever. Like it it doesn't matter. Like Bitcoin doesn't care, and I think that that's like a very important thing to just kind of marinate on. Do you know what I mean? Um, I
0: I am a little curious on your thoughts on this. Now let let's play a little bit of speculation. This is purely your opinion. Um, In the future, when we do reach that point where we are entering hybrid Bitcoinization. Bitcoin is normalized and everyone is sort of involved. These echo chambers that we're talking in right now, maybe don't exist to the degree that they do, but do you think it's going to be as easy as everyone is going to be learning and adopting Bitcoin or it's going to be more, hey, this is a necessity. Everyone's just got to do it. People are going to kind of, most people are going to go begrudgingly into Bitcoin uh, as late adopters because they're told, we don't have another choice
1: yeah I mean, a lot of the people that I've interviewed actually, they don't have any particular love for Bitcoin. They think it's weird, um, but they use it because it works. This is kind of how it was in Belarus with our operations there. like the the guys there were they, they were not Bitcoin fans, but guess what? It allowed them to get value into Belarus where the banking system wouldn't, right? So, yeah, I think like if you go back and you look, there's a really good BBC documentary about. The adoption of credit cards in the United Kingdom in the 70s, and it's a video series. It's really good. Um, it's in the BBC archive, and uh, they, they, they sometimes share it on their Twitter account, which is which is definitely worth following because it's they have all these interesting documentaries about uh, historical developments in the past. But the, the um, and eventually we're going to get one about Bitcoin in the far future. They're going to make one about today, right? So, uh, but uh, no, people were like against credit cards. They're, I don't know. This is weird complaining. uh, I like the old way. I think, yeah, I think tons of people are going to begrudgingly get into Bitcoin because they're kind of compelled to or they need it or whatever, but they're not necessarily going to have some sort of ideological fondness for it. And honestly, if Bitcoin succeeds from a UX perspective and melts gracefully into the apps of the future, then they won't even know about it, maybe. It may even be something that's so like... Like water around us, like it may just not be like like TCP/IP is not something that people have opinions about. Like we don't sit here and argue about the political beliefs of the people who created it, but we all use it. Does that make sense? Now I think Bitcoin will be different. I think Bitcoin will be more of a discussion topic for for a variety of reasons. But that is a thing that happens with 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 technology. It becomes like are there credit card conferences? Do we get around and get excited about credit cards? Like. No. <laughs> there are gold, you know, there are gold, you know, there's a gold community, but like, but also like there's like hundreds of millions of people who own gold and don't go to gold conferences, right? So I don't know. It's gonna be some mix of something like this, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. Um
0: don't give Peter Schiff ideas.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, I do think you're gonna have look in 10 years, every single major research institution worth its salt will have a Bitcoin division, a Bitcoin research center. There's gonna be all kinds of cool thinking and experimentation around it, so I mean maybe maybe it becomes a field like like economics or physics or whatever. It's just sort of like bitcoin and and it becomes you could you could have a career in it. Um, we all use it in varying degrees, and it's a very big part of our world and and it just becomes this thing that like is a thing like you know that that to me is somewhat inevitable.:
0: I hate to break it to you, Alex but I think all of us do. Uh, you you have other ventures as well with Humanized yeah, Foundation, no. but we, we are working full-time in Bitcoin. Yeah, this so was great.
1: I really appreciate the, you guys having me on.
0: The, of course. Uh, I want to give you one last opportunity to remind everyone who's not over on Twitter already following you. If you're on Twitter and you're not following Alex Gladstein, you're doing Twitter wrong, so be sure to pop him up feel, feel free to follow <laughs> Chris and I as well in the meantime, but definitely follow Alex. Um, get your copy of the book in the Bitcoin Magazine store. All of the profits, all the proceeds are going towards the Human Rights Foundation. Alex, is there anything else you'd love to share?
1: Um, no, I hope to see some of you in Miami. Uh, I'm really excited to speak there and uh, honored to speak there and excited to do a book signing and uh, hope to get beers with a lot of you. So see you around.